Good evening. So here we are on the fifth full day of this retreat, which I'm guessing is long enough that most of us have experienced quite a wide range of different physical and mental experiences over these last few days. Agony, ease, aversion, enjoyment, agitation, equanimity, and probably everything in between. And even though we know, intellectually at least, that being on retreat isn't going to be all smooth sailing, and even though we know it's inevitable that at times our meditation practice might run into some rough terrain, and even though we know this is completely normal and to be expected, still, at least in my own experience, there's something that feels quite confronted when we do experience some of those more challenging phases of this path. Because even after many years of practice, there's a very common tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. And then from that misunderstanding, when things get unpleasant, painful, difficult, it's easy to think that we've done something wrong and then we get caught in struggle making a lot of effort to get rid of whatever the difficulty is and get back to that pleasant experience that we had yesterday or on the last retreat or on the last decade. So tonight, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we can expect to encounter during a meditation retreat, specifically the five hindrances, those five particularly unskillful mental states that pull us off balance in various ways and hinder our ability to see clearly until we learn how to navigate them skillfully. And even if you're relatively new to insight practice, I'm pretty confident that you all will have heard at least one talk on these five hindrances. And if you've been doing this practice for a while, you'll likely have heard dozens of talks on these five hindrances. Why? Because they're pretty much universal. Even if you've been coming on retreat for decades, you'll still be working with the hindrances at times, though they're probably showing up with a little less intensity, a little less often, and not lasting as long as they used to. So every one of us here has some familiarity with these five hindrances. So I thought maybe just to check and see if We can name them in order. Anyone know the first one? Sensual desire or desire for sense pleasure, thank you. Which is any kind of craving for sense pleasures, for comfort, wanting, chasing after pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, and also mental experiences. So the second one? Aversion or ill will is the traditional name, which is any kind of not wanting, pushing away, rejecting. And it includes the energies of both anger and fear in all their various forms. So the third one, sloth and torpor, thank you. Old-fashioned words for lethargy of the body, dullness of the mind, basically different forms of low energy. Fourth one, 
sounds like you know that one. <laughs> Restlessness and worry. <laughs> Different forms of too much energy. The body and the mind are agitated, won't stay still, or keep looping over and over in the same mental patterns of anxiety. And then the last one? Yeah. Doubt. Skeptical doubt, officially. Which is any kind of useless questioning that leaves us paralyzed and undermines our capacity to do anything at all. So as I suspected, you guys are good, you're familiar with these. So before we go any further, I just wanted to pick up on something that Brian mentioned last night about how we listen to Dharma talks. Because in my own practice experience, it was an embarrassingly long time before I understood that on retreat, Dharma talks are not just some kind of bedtime story to fill in the long evenings. And it took me a long time to realize that actually I was listening to the talks, or more accurately, half listening to the talks, in the way I listened to classes in high school. So back then, I would just kind of take in passively a stream of factual information, ideas, concepts about whatever the subject was. I'd fill my intellect with this information, but I wouldn't do anything about it. But in this context of being on retreat, the Dharma talk is not about providing knowledge for knowledge's sake. We want to consider how to apply this information directly to our practice. We want to take it in, to experiment with it, to play with it, so that we can learn in our own experience, how the Buddha's teachings do deepen our practice. So as an example of how not to listen to a talk, here's a story loosely based on my own experience during one of the first few retreats. And like many of you, I was going through ups and downs, and so I was really looking forward to the Dharma talk, hoping that it was going to be entertaining, and that it might give me a few pleasant moments of relief at the end of a long, hard day. So I came into the hall, I sat down, and I saw that one of my favorite teachers was their turn to give the talk. So I was like, yes, this is going to be good. Glad I brought my notebook so I can write down some gems of inspiration. And then I heard the teacher say that the talk was going to be on the five hindrances. And I was like, no, not the five hindrances again. I've heard this talk before, I know the list, so I can just space out now. I'll just settle back, relax, maybe spin a bit more fantasy about my Vipassana romance for a while. (laughs) And then suddenly, whoa, what was that horrible noise? It sounded like a snort or a grunt or a snore. Oh, it was definitely a snore and it was coming from really near here. It wasn't me, was it? Did I fall asleep? Did I snore? No, it was. How embarrassing. Now everybody knows what a hopeless meditator I am. What was I thinking signing up for a long retreat? I may as well just go home now and put myself out of misery. No, wait a minute. What was the teacher saying? Something about doubt? (laughs) Huh, maybe that... Is that doubt? And before that, was that restlessness? And before that, was that sloth and torpor? And before that, mm, I think that was aversion. And before that, yep, sense desire. Wow, all five of them right there. Too bad I missed hearing about what the antidotes are. 
So hopefully you recognize that some of those five hindrances coming up as I describe that experience, because this is really a key skill of insight practice. The earlier we can be aware of the hindrances before they have time to really get their hooks into us, the easier it is to release them. So before going into the specifics, I just want to name the context of what causes them. So back on the first night of the retreat, Annie mentioned that uh, the what are traditionally known as the three core or root afflictive energies of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. And the Buddha really singled these out because when there's no mindfulness, these three very basic afflictive energies are what keep us spinning out, keep us caught in painful mental states that proliferate into all kinds of harmful thought patterns and emotions which then propel us often into behaving in unskillful ways, perpetuating this whole cycle of misery, of stress, distress, suffering, dukkha. So as I mentioned, these three core afflictive energies are traditionally known as greed, hatred, and ignorance. Or to use more contemporary language, uh, the English Dharma teacher Martin Aylward talks them about, about them as the three C's of compulsion or greed, contraction or hatred, and confusion or delusion. So three C's, compulsion, contraction, confusion. And he makes the point that if there's no mindfulness, then we tend to act out on those three C's and they get expressed outwardly in our behavior as the three D's of demands, stemming from greed, defense, stemming from hatred, and distraction, stemming from delusion. So the three D's, demands, defense, distraction. And we can pretty clearly see these three core afflictive energies at play in the world out there. So Dawn's talk on Friday night touched into some of the tragic and society-wide results of unchecked greed, hatred, and ignorance running rampant. And because the world in here is a microcosm of the world out there, we can also see those same forces at play in our own hearts and minds which might sound depressing, but actually is good news because here on on retreat, we have a very powerful opportunity to get to know just how these afflictive energies show up for us and then how to free ourselves from them. So metaphorically, greed, hatred, and ignorance are the parents that the five hindrances issue from, if you can have three parents. Five hindrances, and the Buddha was very clear in the suttas that actually working with the hindrances is an ethical practice. It's not just something we do for the benefit of our meditation, it has a direct effect on reducing harm to ourselves and harm to others. So, in the suttas, the Buddha is reported to have said that these five hindrances, quote, overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. And he goes on to say that when a practitioner is without strength and is weak in discernment, it's impossible for them to understand what is for one's own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, 
and to understand what is for the benefit of both. So this practice of bringing awareness to the hindrances has an ethical aspect to it. And it's grounded in the same commitment to non-harming that we undertook with the five training precepts on opening night and Saturday morning. And in the service of non-harming to ourselves and to others, we need to learn how to recognize these five hindrances and how to help them release if we're going to experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So that's a sneak preview of where all this is heading in the direction of greater ease, happiness, and freedom. But to get there, first we have to cultivate or prepare our hearts and minds by weeding out the hindrances, literally making more room for the skillful mental states to develop. And in this way, each of us is contributing to reducing the harmful forces of racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia and classism and ableism and speciesism and all the other deeply afflictive forces that are threatening actually the survival of our planet and all the beings on it. So the more work we can do in here to free our own hearts and minds from greed, hatred and delusion, the less toxicity we contribute to our communities, our societies and the world out there. And in many ways, this is the whole of the practice, because in some suttas, nibbana or awakening is defined as the heart-mind that is completely free from greed, free from hatred, free from ignorance. So in support of this, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness, the Buddha instructed us to train in recognizing these five hindrances. And they're known as hindrances because they interfere or hinder or block our capacity to see clearly, to develop insight. And the Pali word nivarana, that's usually translated as hindrance, literally means cover or veil or obscuration. So I want to start by making some general suggestions that can be applied to working with any of these five hindrances. And with any of them, the first step is to be able to recognize them when they do arise. So here are the actual instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta based on a translation by Bhikkhu Analyo. I'm going to read it in relation to the first one, which is sensual desire, but the same passage is then repeated for the other four. If sensual desire is present in one, one knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in one, one knows there is no sensual desire in me. And one knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of sensual desire can be prevented. So I could spend the whole rest of the talk just on that passage, but the first step I want to highlight is knowing is the hindrance present or not. So we each need to learn to recognize for ourselves how these um, hindrances tend to show up for us because they each will have their own unique signature patterns. 
specific ways that they manifest for us in the body, in the heart, in the mind. So in my own practice, I sometimes use a very simple technique for um, helping me to stay present and bring awareness to what might be going on, especially when I notice I've lost mindfulness and I feel to be caught in a struggle of some kind. I momentarily stop and ask myself three questions as a way of kind of taking a snapshot of my experience in the moment and of reconnecting with whatever is happening. So the first question is, what's happening in the body, in my physical experience? (laughs) And you might do that right now, just to take that kind of quick snapshot. What physical sensations are you aware of in this moment? Just to notice. And then the second question is, what's happening in the heart-mind? And I use heart and mind together because in English, mind sometimes sounds like it only refers to the intellect, to thoughts. But it also includes emotions, moods, mind states. So what's happening in the heart-mind? What are you aware of right now in your emotional and mental experience? Just take a moment to notice. And we will be going into the practice of mindfulness of the mind in more detail soon. But for now, just notice any thoughts, emotions, background moods, or mind states that might be present. And then the third question can help us notice if any of the hindrances might be starting to come into play. It's, how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind about it? So here we might begin to notice if there is some trace of dislike or subtle resistance, some form of not wanting what's happening. Or perhaps the opposite, a liking, a greed, a wanting it to continue, wanting to enhance it. Or perhaps any of the other hindrances, maybe dullness or restlessness, confusion, anxiety or doubt. So again, you might just take a moment to notice. How are you relating to whatever your experience is right now? And if you do notice any sense of struggle, that's probably a sign that one or more of the hindrances is present. And then it might be helpful just to quickly run through the checklist of the five. Is it sensual desire? Is it ill will? Is it sloth and torpor? Is it restlessness and worry? Is it skeptical doubt? Or is it what we might call a multiple hindrance attack? (laughs) And unfortunately, this multiple hindrance attack is quite common in the first few days of a retreat because although the list suggests this nice, tidy order, the hindrances in practice rarely show up nicely one at a time. They do tend to hunt in packs. So at times we might need to just name multiple hindrance attack and remember the truth of impermanence. At some point, this too will pass. So the first step in working with the hindrances is to recognize when they're present. Then if we do recognize it, notice how we're relating to it. Because one unfortunate byproduct of the hindrances is that we often have aversion towards them. And even the word hindrance itself 
can trigger a belief that these are wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening, and I need to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And while it's true that we don't want to be feeding these states, if we react to them with aversion, then we're just fueling the hindrance of ill will. So instead, we try to meet the energy of the hindrances with kind curiosity rather than rejection or resistance. And if we are able to do this, then instead of being obstacles to our practice, they can become vehicles that help progress us along the path. So I've shared with some of you, there's a training slogan I found a few years ago that's been very helpful in my own practice. If it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And the first time I heard that, it shone a spotlight in so many ways that I was trying to put things outside of my practice. So for example, if only I wasn't get, getting caught up in fantasies all the time, then I'd be able to practice deeply. Or if only that annoying person would stop doing whatever they're doing to annoy me, then I'd be able to practice deeply. If only I could stop falling asleep in every single sitting, then I'd be able to practice deeply. Or if only my mind would stop obsessing about that stupid thing I did at work last week, then I'd be able to practice deeply. If only I'd read more Dharma books or meditated every day or done more retreats with experienced teachers, then I'd be able to practice deeply. So noticing the stories and let each of those situations become your practice by folding them into the field of awareness. Bring mindfulness right there, identifying which of the five hindrances are in play. Notice how they show up in the body, the sensations, the physical sensations. Notice the emotions in the heart and the thought patterns in the mind and the attitude about the experience. So that the next time when that hindrance starts to come up, you might notice it a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker again each time until eventually the hindrance might just be kind of a flicker in the mind and it doesn't take root. It's simply known and then gone. Which, again, might sound easy, but there's a second big trap that's very common in experiencing these hindrances, and that's the tendency to take them personally, to identify with them, to believe that they're a reflection of my bad practice. And by extension, I'm a bad human being because they've come up. But until we're fully awakened, we're going to experience the hindrances to varying degrees of intensity. So rather than judging ourselves for experiencing them, again, we try to meet them with an attitude of kind curiosity, knowing that they're just part of being a human being. So again, uh, the... English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea talks about the hindrances in a way that I found very helpful. He refers to them as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. So you might notice if that brings in a different attitude when you think of the hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. And sometimes when I share that on retreat, people come into the individual meetings and they say, I have been manifesting so much humanity this morning. <laughs> And it's good to be able to laugh because 
taking the hindrances personally only makes them stronger. So we try to relate to them in the same way we relate to everything else in insight practice. Understanding that there are impersonal phenomena arising due to conditions and eventually passing due to conditions. Not I, not me, not mine. Impermanent and impersonal. And when we can do this, the mind stays undisturbed by whatever passes through it. We start to experience the deep freedom of an unhindered mind. Unfortunately, though, we can't jump ahead to that place. We do need to put in the work of mental cultivation, learning to recognize the weeds, the metaphorical weeds of the hindrances, and how to remove them skillfully. So I'll come back to each of the hindrances in just a little bit more detail, but don't worry, I'll just be touching into each one because we will be coming back probably to some of them in future talks. So the first of the five is usually translated as sensual desire or desire for sense pleasure. And it's rooted in the core afflictive energy of greed. And one of the challenges of this hindrance is that it's sometimes experienced as pleasant. But if we start to pay closer attention, we recognize the subtle or not so subtle agitation that underlies the sensual desire and how even fairly minor levels of agitation have a strong effect on our capacity to meditate. So in the classical discourses, the metaphor of water, of still, clear water, is often used as a synonym for the mind in meditation. And this image of water evokes qualities of clarity and tranquility. When the mind is still and clear, when sati, mindfulness, and samadhi, stability of mind, are both strong, deep insight can arise. So when he talked about the hindrances, the Buddha used the metaphor of a bowl of water to represent the mind. Because in India at that time, bowls of water were used by ordinary people in the same way that we use mirrors today. Back then, glass mirrors were not very common. And instead, people used a still bowl of water to check their reflection. And obviously, if the water in the bowl isn't completely still and clear, we're not going to get an accurate image. So using this analogy of the bowl of water, the Buddha described how each hindrance affects the mind. And he compared this first hindrance, the desire for sense pleasure, to a bowl of water that's been mixed in with dyes, red and blue, yellow and green dyes. And the pretty colors enchant us, and they prevent us from seeing clearly, from getting an accurate reflection. So he says, imagine a bowl of water mixed with lac, that's an old type of dye, with turmeric, with dark green or crimson dye. If a person with good eyesight were to look at the reflection of their own face in it, they would not know or see it as it really is. In the same way, when a man deals with their heart possessed and overwhelmed by sense desire, then they cannot know or see as it really is. 
what is for their own benefit, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of both. So this hindrance of sense desire covers a whole spectrum of wanting, from the most intense craving to just the slightest trace of preference for something, any kind of movement towards something. And on retreat, this hindrance sometimes shows up quite strongly as a reaction to the simplicity of the retreat container. It can show up as an obsession with comfort. And I've seen this in myself and sometimes other meditators on retreat, how after a day or two, we work out all kinds of strategies and habits and techniques for keeping ourselves as comfortable as possible and as cozy as possible. And once we've got these strategies in place, we can get surprisingly reactive if they get threatened in any way. If there's someone walking on my walking track or someone using my favorite shower stall right when I wanted to take a shower or someone taking the very last chocolate brownie even though it's obvious from the crumbs on their plate that they've already had at least one and I haven't had any. Anybody notice that? So there is also, though, a caveat here in talking about sense-desire as a hindrance. Sometimes people misunderstand it as meaning that the Buddha was saying we should never enjoy anything, that we should try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. But this is a misunderstanding. We're not being asked to get rid of pleasure. We're being asked to notice our relationship to it, to see if we're getting attached to it in some way. So coming back to the chocolate brownie as a very simple example, if we can stay mindful of the pleasant experience as we eat it, then there's no problem. On the other hand, if we see the stack of brownies on the dessert table and immediately start counting how many people are in line before us and wondering how many are going to be left by the time we get there and how many pieces we might take without looking too greedy and whether we can get the recipe from the kitchen, then all of that mental agitation is a good indication that we've got caught in the hindrance of sense desire. And again, sometimes people wonder, well, what's so bad about just getting my desires met if and when I can. And the Buddha did acknowledge that sense, desire, sense pleasures can, bring, can be a source of happiness. But on retreat, when we really pay attention, we can see just how short-term this happiness is because of the truth that everything changes before long the pleasant experience fades and then we're off searching for the next hit and the next and the next and the next. And if we keep putting all our energy and attention out there, trying to arrange everything out there to our own satisfaction, then we're dependent on unstable conditions to make us happy, which is a setup for disappointment. On the other hand, if we can learn to ride the waves of desire without automatically indulging them, we have more chance of finding an inner peace that has some steadiness to it, no matter what the external conditions might be. So there's more freedom there. And again, there's a lot more I could say, so I'm not going to uh, dwell on this hindrance too long. I just mentioned a couple of possible antidotes 
the first one, first strategy, as you can probably guess, is mindfulness. Notice how sense desire shows up in the body. If you pay attention, at least for me, I often notice a a subtle or not so subtle sense of leaning forward, as if I'm being drawn, magnetically attracted to whatever that is. I'm pulled towards what I want. Sometimes there are sensations of heat and energy in the body. And in the mind, excited, racing thoughts that often then spin out into fantasies of all kinds. And so letting those be a feedback to help recognize, oh, this is sense desire. And right in that moment of recognition is a moment of freedom because the part of the mind that recognizes the hindrance is different from the mind that's caught up in it. And the more we can keep perforating the hindrance cloud with those moments of recognition, the quicker it can break up and disperse completely. And there's a second very powerful antidote in terms of sense desire, and that's the quality of renunciation or relinquishment, voluntary simplicity that we're all entering into with this retreat container. So we can consciously practice with accepting the conditions just as they find them, as we find them, rather than trying to change them to suit our own individual preferences. And this might go against the basic foundations of consumerism, but actually more choice doesn't lead to greater happiness. And there have been many research studies that have shown that the opposite is true, that the more choice there is, the more dissatisfaction and anxiety. And this resonates with my own experience of practicing in monasteries or on retreat in places like Thailand, where conditions are very simple. And surprisingly, deep stillness, happiness, and contentment is often more available. Because when the mind realizes it doesn't have a choice, it just goes quiet. And paradoxically, the stillness, the calm, the contentment, and the peace are far more pleasant than any short-term happiness that comes from having sense pleasures satisfied. However, at times when mindfulness is weak, we get to experience the reciprocal relationship between sense, desire, and ill will or aversion. So at those times when we don't recognize sense, desire for what it is and when it isn't fulfilled, we usually get hooked by the next hindrance, ill will or aversion. And then because ill will feels painful, We often unconsciously chase after something pleasant to try and get rid of the unpleasantness. And so we swing backwards and forwards between greed or desire for sense pleasure and ill will or aversion. So I think of it as like, you know, in kids' playgrounds, they have that thing that goes like this. I call it a seesaw, but I think in the U.S. it's something, is it a teeter-totter? Or different states have different names, but those things that flip-flop, we bounce from one to the other. So with ill will, the Pali word vyapada is usually translated as ill will. According to Gil Fronsdal, it has literal meaning of the desire to strike out at something. And it's motivated by hostility. 
it manifests as wanting to hurt, attack, push away, or turn away from something. So again, it covers a range from murderous rage at one end of the spectrum to more subtle forms such as mental resistance. And it also includes different forms of fear, from minor anxiety all the way through to terror. So it covers a pretty broad scope of unpleasant emotions and afflictive mind states, just to name a few, dislike, aversion, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, anxiety, fear, panic, terror. I have a few more lines, but even just hearing that amount of aversion can bring up aversion. So I'll let you fill in the blanks for yourself. And in the classical analogy of the bowl of water, the hindrance of ill will is likened to water that's been heated on a fire, is boiling up and bubbling over. Obviously, when the water is hot like that, we can't see clearly. And in English, we talk about seething with anger, which is a very unpleasant state. And from that metaphor, we also get a sense of how painful aversion is. Painful and potentially dangerous to others and to ourselves. So on retreat, this hindrance sometimes shows up as reactivity to the retreat container itself, perhaps irritation at having to follow the schedule, or fear and anxiety about not following the schedule. Sometimes there's resentment about having to do our yogi jobs, or irritation with our co-workers or our fellow meditators. There are myriad ways that we can find ourselves caught in ill will on retreat. But I'll just touch in briefly to one that's very common, and that's the judging mind. We judge ourselves, we judge our practice, we judge each other, we judge the teachers, we judge anything that moves. And it can be quite shocking sometimes to see just how much mental energy is taken up by the judging mind. And then again, we can judge the judging. So the trick again is to try not to take it personally. And if possible, to try to have a sense of humor about this near universal tendency of the mind. So some of you might know a couple of techniques that Joseph Goldstein uses for working with a judging mind. One is just to start counting the judging thoughts from the moment you wake up in the morning until you go to bed at night, if you get that far. So we get up, we walk into the dining room for breakfast, oatmeal again, judgment number one. Why are people so slow to make their coffee? Judgment number two. Look at that person leaving their dirty spoon on the counter. Can't they read the sign? Judgment number three, and so on. And at some point, when we get to maybe 453, we just have to laugh. And the second technique Joseph uses is to add a benign or nonsense statement to each judging thought. So the one he uses is, the sky is blue. So, for example, oatmeal again, yes, and the sky is blue. People are so slow to make their coffee, and the sky is blue. 
why are they leaving their spoon there? And the sky is blue. And you can experiment with finding your own tag. The purpose, again, is just to lighten the judging mind so we don't take it so seriously or so personally. So one particular challenge with ill will, unlike sense desire, is it's unpleasant. And so it's very easy to get caught in aversion to the aversion, and aversion to the aversion to the aversion, and so on. But the more we struggle with it, that very resistance makes it hang around longer. So if mindfulness is weak and we do find ourselves getting caught, or if we feel in danger of acting out on the aversion, perhaps wanting to break the silence and write a note to another yogi, then we might try to apply the antidote of metta. Because as you know, one of the translations of the word metta is good will. So it's a very direct antidote to the hindrance of ill will. So we can work with metta practice in whatever ways we usually do it. But just to mention that in my own experience, and again, I hope I'm not projecting too much, but in my own experience practice, I've seen myself at times use metta as a way of distancing myself from something I don't like. So I'll be sitting mechanically saying, may they be well, may they be happy, etc. And what I really mean is, I hate this, get it away from me, make it stop, make it go away. So I'm kind of putting a covering of metta, a veneer of metta over a seething mass of resentment, resistance, and so on. So in that case, I've actually found that self-compassion is, can be more useful because compassion connects very directly with suffering, with the pain, the stress, the distress of the afflictive state. And it's the invitation to meet that pain, that suffering with kindness rather than judgment or resistance. Okay, hopefully you're hanging in there. There's only three to go, and I'm going to touch into them very briefly. So the first two hindrances, desire for sense, pleasure, and ill will, relate to the core energies of greed and hatred. The next three, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, skeptical doubt, are all manifestations of the core energy of ignorance. So they're different flavors of delusion, disconnection, distraction, and so on. So the third hindrance, sloth and torpor, these are old-fashioned English words for sleepiness and sluggishness in the body, dullness or stiffness in the mind. So there's an Australian Pali scholar, Christopher Ash, who translates sloth and torpor as sluggishness and inertia. And I think that inert word inertia captures this state quite well. And again, it covers a whole spectrum of intensity, from the total unconsciousness of sleep through to just a slight feeling of drowsiness or spaciness. And the bowl of water metaphor talks about a bowl of water that has become covered over with slimy moss and water plants. Algae, in other words. And we can't see clearly because the mind is stagnant. Nothing moves. The water is choked with weeds.
And one of the challenges with this hindrance is again that unlike the agitation of sense desire and ill will, sometimes the slightly sinking, zoned out feeling of sloth and torpor can be experienced as mildly pleasant. But in addition to simple sleepiness or dullness, it also shows up as a kind of apathy or a habitual tendency to retreat in the face of difficulties. That urge just to go back to bed for a while whenever something unpleasant comes up in the practice. It's that desire to check out, to numb out, to disconnect. And sometimes giving in to this urge is rationalized as a form of self-compassion. Oh, I've worked hard today. Wouldn't hurt to take another little nap right now. And sometimes that might be true. But do you want to check it out and see what happens when you do take that nap? Is there more clarity in the mind afterwards or not? And is taking a nap becoming a default strategy whenever something is experienced as unpleasant? And if it is, then it might be helpful to consider other options. So this morning, Carol mentioned a few strategies. The first, when we're sitting in meditation, we notice sloth and torpor is coming in. Open the eyes, because if the sloth and torpor hasn't got too much of a hold, then just taking in more light can brighten the mind. And I think that traditional strategy of pulling the earlobes has been mentioned a couple of times already. So one student asked me if that's why the Buddha has such long earlobes, <laughs> the sign of how much struggle he had with sloth and torpor. It's a theory. My understanding is that they symbolize the renunciation of wearing adornments. So he used to wear a lot of gold earrings and then they're gone the hole is still there so we can try pulling the earlobes one of my first teachers had a slightly unusual suggestion that worked surprisingly well the couple of times that I tried it he was talking about it when if you've had that experience where we're in that sort of torso bobbing phase and we just keep sort of bobbing and we realize we pull up and then two seconds later we're down again the head and the chest keep slumping forward. He said, next time you slump forward, rather than jerking back upright, stay there. (laughs) Just stay there for a minute or two and notice how that feels. And then slowly, mindfully, come back to upright. And I don't know whether it was the self-consciousness or the weirdness, but something helped me get more bright. So... Again, just something to play with. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy in the form of not enough energy. Whereas the fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry, is an imbalance in terms of too much energy. And again, we see that reciprocal relationship between them. So we often swing between sluggishness and then feeling all revved up. And because the agitation of restlessness and worry is tiring, before too much longer we tend to sink back into sloth and torpor. So restlessness and worry has a bodily component and a mental component. And of course they condition each other. So restlessness in the body can show up as twitchy feelings and jumpiness and energetic pulses and the body wants to move every few minutes. But if we give in to that urge, 
you've probably noticed, the more we move, the more we want to move. Until suddenly we just feel like we cannot stand one more minute of sitting still. And then often the mind gets caught in worry and rumination and wondering and proliferating and agitation and anxiety. And we can't believe how slowly the minutes are passing. And there might even be a sudden urge to run screaming from the room. So again, as with all the hindrances, this one covers a whole spectrum of intensity. And the traditional metaphor in terms of the bowl of water is a water that's been ruffled by the wind so that the water trembles, eddies, and ripples. So again, when the surface is rough and choppy, we can't see clearly. And on retreat, it can show up as obsessive thinking, the mind that just keeps looping and looping and looping over the same old thoughts. And as it's, it's as if we're endlessly trying to solve a problem that just can't be worked out by thinking alone. So when we are stuck in a thought pattern like that, often it's a sign that there's some underlying emotion that we haven't yet recognized. So one strategy for working with this hindrance is when we are caught in looping to gently bring the attention out of the head and more into the body and the heart to see if there might be some underlying emotion that we can identify. And again, if necessary, self-compassion can be a useful antidote. And again, we'll be giving more talks on working with difficult emotions, so I'll leave it at that for now. And if you do feel the need for more information, of course you can check in with your teacher in your individual meetings. So finally, the last one, skeptical doubt. And this doubt can show up in all kinds of ways, as doubt about the teachings, doubt about the teachers, doubt about our own capacity to do the practice. And in the body, it might be experienced as a hollow or shaky or ungrounded feeling. But for most people, doubt tends to manifest more strongly in the mind as a proliferation of endless questions and second-guessing and uncertainty or confusion. And it's interesting to me that the traditional metaphor for skeptical doubt is a bowl of water that is, quote, agitated, stirred up, muddied, and put in a dark place. So not only is a bowl of water filled with mud, but literally and metaphorically, it's in a dark place, which I think gives a sense of the doubly destructive aspect of doubt. The mind is clouded and it's in a dark place. So we can't even recognize the presence of the metaphorical mud. So you can see then that this hindrance is often quite hard to recognize. And it's usually referred to as skeptical doubt rather than just doubt to distinguish it from a more skillful form of questioning or inquiry. The difference with inquiry is that the questions in that case lead to clarity, lead to more understanding. Whereas with skeptical doubt, the questions just spin us out in what's sometimes known as paralysis by analysis. 
And on retreat, for example, it sometimes shows up as getting caught in wondering, I don't know, should I do mindfulness of breathing or metta? Should I be trying to get more concentrated or more relaxed? Would it be better to do walking meditation or yoga? And sometimes we end up not doing anything at all because we just can't decide what's best. But there's one very simple remedy for this problem. On one level, it doesn't matter what specific form of practice you choose to do because cultivating mindfulness or the Brahma-viharas is always time well spent. So we'll be talking more about doubt soon, but just to mention again that the first antidote is to recognize it for what it is. Oh, it's just doubt. Doubt feels like this. And often the recognition of it helps it to disappear. But if it's really strong, again, bring it to your individual meeting teacher and they can give you more specific suggestions. So that completes our quick tour for now. And I want to highlight that the good news is that with practice, these hindrances, although they still come up, even for very experienced meditators, as I said earlier, they tend to show up with less intensity. They don't stick around for nearly as long. And the more we can cultivate this non-reactive attitude to them, the easier that process is. So there's a key uh, part of the instructions that I read earlier from the Satipatthana Sutta, just to remember the first part is to know is the hindrance present in one or not. And the or not piece is really key. And yet it's often overlooked because in some ways it's counterintuitive. Our biological hardwiring to be on the alert for problems and to give more weight to what's unpleasant and to what's pleasant means that many of us tend to fixate on what's wrong with our practice and to not even recognize those times when the hindrances might be absent. And sometimes we've got so habituated to the drama of wrestling with this problem or that challenge or this hindrance that when they do disappear, we might even feel uneasy or anxious because suddenly there's nothing to do. And at the beginning of our Dharma practice, mind states such as calm, tranquility, ease, equanimity may take some getting used to. But this instruction from the Satipatthana Sutta really encourages us to recognize, to notice, to abide in those times when the mind is free from the hindrances. So that over time, they become more and more the default setting. So I hope that this quick overview might give you some sense of where this is all going and what can happen when the hindrances lessen in intensity. So I'd like to close with one more passage from the suttas, one that's attributed to the Buddha. And as you listen, you might imagine that the Buddha is speaking directly to you because, in a way, he is. So please... uh, Just take in these words as best you can. Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible 
to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandon of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what is conducive to benefit and pleasure so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.